Good morning to you all. It's good to see you. If you're joining us online, thank you so much for being with us. As our children go out to their ministry, we'll be praying that God will bless you. And we thank you for all of your hard work, those of you that are making that happen today. We're very grateful. Please, if you have a Bible, could you turn in Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 6. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Malcolm Duncan. I have the privilege of leading the church here at Dundonald. And I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be with us this Sunday. Whether you're here in person in the room or you're joining us online, I'm aware that modern life has many demands upon it. And I'm grateful to you uh, for being here or for joining us online. Praying that God will richly bless you. Can I really encourage you to um, get behind all the things that are going to be happening across the next two or three weeks as we gather together. And um, I know that God has been really using Davy and the team down in Relentless, and you'll want to hear about that next Sunday night and encourage him as he brings God's word to us next Sunday morning and uh, across the Wednesdays as well as our own folk share God's word and as we seek God's face together. It's a great time to be together and just encourage one another and gather around the scriptures. Please do try to um, be alongside those folk. And tonight, before I get to my message this morning, I want to preach this evening on, in the series that we've been doing on living free from various issues. Tonight I'm preaching on living free from rejection. And I'd love you to think about someone that you know that needs to hear that message. Perhaps a, a believer who has slipped away from their relationship with God, or somebody who's finding life really difficult, or finds it hard to know that they're loved or accepted. Maybe that's you, but maybe it's somebody else. Would you just take a few moments this afternoon to pray about that and perhaps give them a ring and ask them to come along, invite, to take them, out, invite them out for a cup of coffee or something and just connect with them and let's see what God might do with it. So Matthew chapter six, as we continue our series looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we've entitled this series, um, The Manifesto for Life, The Best Way to Live. And this morning... I want to focus on the first 18 verses of Matthew 6, if I can, exploring the theme of a healthy spiritual life. Let's read these words together. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil in your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret 
will reward you. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter and I'll explain why in a moment. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Last week, we um, finished looking at Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm so grateful to you and to many others for the comments that you're making on Facebook and um, in person about this sermon series, this manifesto for life. So far, we've looked at the first chapter just. There are three in this um, sermon. And that first chapter looked at priorities and having an attitude of growth and dependency in God and openness to him. It looked at the fact that Jesus called his disciples to let their light shine out before the world so that they could see who God was through the way followers of Jesus acted and behaved and believed, like salt and like light, reminding them that their small lives can make a huge difference for the kingdom of God. We also were reminded that Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of all the regulations and rules and laws that go with Judaism. I have fulfilled them. I'm living them out. But he went further and he said, but I am the living way to a real, true, balanced, fruitful and effective life. He is the living Torah. And then he grounded all of that in very real physical examples of attitude and conduct and character and words, how we think, how we react to criticism, how we handle those who are our enemies, how we deal with those that oppress us or attack us. And then we come to chapter 6. About a 10 second delay on this microphone when I turn it off, so my apologies for that. Then we come to chapter 6. And it's as if you get to the end of chapter 5, and you've had all of these inspirational instructions from Jesus, if you're listening to him. And in your heart, you're saying, how do I do that? And then you read the verses that we've just read. I want to focus, if I can, on the first 18 verses. When you read and take seriously Matthew chapter 5, with its hope and with its challenge, you end up feeling like your life could be gloriously different. But you also feel deeply challenged. Where does the strength to live like this come from? You feel gloriously stripped back and yet 
bear and you know that your feelings and your shortcomings are right in front of you. So is change possible? Can we live different lives? Is it possible to have a different attitude to money, to wealth, to power, to criticism, to enemies, to stuff? Is it possible to let your integrity shine out so that your word can be your word? Make no mistake about it. Matthew chapter 6 is as revolutionary as Matthew chapter 5. In it, if Jesus has been talking about how we deal with our inner attitudes in Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 6, he starts to talk about how we deal with our spirituality, how we deal with our relationship with God. And there he lands on the nub of the issue. In Matthew 7, as we'll see in a few weeks' time, he's talking about relationships and judging others and making sure your heart is right. If Matthew 5 is about me and myself and how I think and process, and Matthew 7 is about how I relate to other people, then Matthew 6 is about how I relate to the world around me. How do you deal with worry? Are you like me? Could you worry for Northern Ireland? How do you deal with stuff? Does it determine you? Does it give you a sense of value and purpose and wealth or identity that you might have things? How you deal with those is deeply connected to how you deal with God. And in a way that is very rarely exposed, I think, Jesus does something in Matthew chapter 6, which is fundamentally life-giving if we will let it be. We are not changed from the outside in. We are transfigured. We are changed as human beings from the inside out. Get that sorted and everything else will be sorted and it's not rooted, this change, in how you view other people. It's rooted in how you and God relate to one another. In your unseen, unnoticed, private spirituality. Make no mistake about it. Who we are when the lights are out will eventually show up. Our inner lives will catch up with us. And they will be reflected in our lifestyles eventually. You can fool me, and you can fool the church, and you can fool your family, but there are two people you cannot fool, God and ultimately yourself. Matthew 6 shows us how to live well from the inside out, and it's the only way to live well. It's that that I want to focus on with you. At the heart of the power to change is resting in the power of God in you and allowing it to flow out of you and into the world around you. But this isn't a nondescript idea. It's not a spiritual aphorism that exists in the air somewhere. For Jesus, spirituality is measurable. It's clear. You can work it out. The Sermon on the Mount isn't this kind of spiritual truth that exists up here here and again and again, he gives you key, concrete things that you can work out. Do you want to know how you're doing with God? Let me give you three simple tests given here in Matthew 6. I'll give you another few when we get to Matthew 7. But for the moment, this is about you and God. How's your generosity? How's your self-discipline? And how's your prayer life? They'll tell you how you're doing with God. Those three things. How generous are you? What's your relationship with God like in prayer? And how disciplined are you? What dictates your decisions day by day? Those are the three key things that Jesus focuses in on, on the first half of Matthew chapter 6. And they're uncomfortable because we don't really like to be challenged around these things. But if we're to be healthy followers of Jesus Christ, these tests are healthy for us. They'll help us to grow. They'll help us um, to be encouraged and strengthened. A word of warning. Three times in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, Jesus uses a word which I'll come back to a little later on. It's the word hypocrite. And it is the Greek word from which the word actor comes, actually. It's the idea that you have one life on the inside and one life on the outside. 
And what he's doing here is not in the first instance challenging those who are following him, although he's doing that. What he is doing in this sermon to those that are listening is also challenging those who say that they are the right ones. Three times here, and in Matthew chapter 23, uh, six or seven times, Jesus uses this word. We'll come to it in a minute. But here, he's saying something about something that's happening in wider society at the time of this sermon. He's talking about double standards, about a religious group of people who claim to be right, who always claim to be um, in the right, who claim to be holier than thou. You must have met some of them. And then point their finger at other people and tell them how to live. And in prayer, in fasting, and in generosity, Jesus says, they're getting this wrong. How are you doing in these areas? So I want to give you a word of warning as I try to help you understand this. Be careful of double standards. Be careful of double standards in private life. Be be careful of double standards in family life. Be careful of double standards in your public life. It's always struck me as really interesting that... These will sound like political statements about global politics. Well, they are a little bit, but don't shoot me for them. It's always struck me as really interesting that we were rapidly quick to get rid of Saddam Hussein, but let Robert Mugabe stay in power until he was nearly 100. I'm sure that had nothing to do with oil. It's interesting that we can say so much about a power that we know We are militarily stronger than Iraq, but so little about a power that is militarily stronger than us, China. It amazes me that we can celebrate so many things in public life on one one hand and on the other hand be criticizing them when it suits us. We are all guilty of taking sides. I take sides. It's just that I often take the wrong side. Isn't the blood of any human being the same color? Isn't wrong wrong when it's perpetrated by somebody you love or somebody you don't love? Hypocrisy can be seen in our attitudes and our actions as nations, but it can also be seen in our actions as people. Have you ever had that, those of you that have children for a moment, Let me ask you this. Have you ever had that awful conversation when you meet the parent of another child? And it's amazing that parents' children, they always think their children are geniuses. No matter what parent you talk to, well, he's specially gifted, you know. He's he's, he's advanced. They're talking about having a missy year in school. Everybody's children seem to be geniuses. We have this pink lens or tint that we can put on our own children. And of course, it's because we love them. It's because they're they're ours. We have a responsibility for them. We believe in them. But that can tilt over into them not being able to do anything wrong. I was trying to remember the name of the girl um, from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the one that blows up, Violet, whatever her name is. We have that attitude. If we're not careful, those that are closest to us can do nothing wrong. And anybody else can do everything wrong. Just be careful in your heart as we explore this, these three key areas about double standards. About applying to other people, other churches, other leaders, other children, other marriages, other nations, other political viewpoints, other creeds, other colors, other cultures. A standard which you don't apply to yourself. I want to read to you for a moment from Mark chapter 7. You'll need to turn to it in your Bibles. I'm going to read a few verses, starting at verse 14. I can hear pages turning. That is really cool. They can beep as well, if you like. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me. Everyone, and understand this, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he said, 
Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. In other words, Jesus, at the heart of his understanding of human nature, says it isn't what you do that is the problem. It's what causes you to do what you do that's the problem. It's the stuff on the inside of you that works its way out that is the issue. And in Matthew 6, that's what he deals with. I can't tell you how many people come to me over the years, have come to me over the years and said, how do I deal with the issue of sexual lust? How do I deal with the issue of unfaithfulness? How do I deal with greed? How do I deal with avarice? How do I deal with resentment or jealousy? Because they blight us. And the answer may well lie in learning different behaviors, but the behaviors themselves won't change the inner reality of the struggles that you're facing. What Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount is a way of being changed from the inside out. And that's much more lasting. That's much more effective. Now, in order to help you understand that this is why I read the whole chapter, and we're going to return to it when I come back from France. So you're going to have to wait three weeks, I'm afraid, until we get to the second half of Matthew chapter 6. But in verses 1 to 4 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about something called almsgiving. It actually means acts of righteousness or acts of private giving. I'll explain it in a minute. In verses 5 to 15, he talks about prayer. And in verses 16 to 18, he talks about fasting, generosity, prayer, and self-discipline. Those were the three areas I mentioned a moment or two ago. Then in the second half of Matthew chapter 6, from verses 19 to 33, he talks about ambitions and priorities in verses 19 to 24, and possessions and status and worry from verses 25 to 34. Now think about it for a minute. What you see him doing in this chapter, and remember chapters and verses weren't in the Bible originally, are two things. First of all, he deals with the inner life, and then he explains how that has an impact on your outer life. If you want to know about worry, if you want to handle worrying about having enough, worrying about having clothes, worrying about having enough money, worrying about um, having the right status, worrying about being in the right neighborhood, worrying about being a success. What do you think Western thinking would tell you about that? Today, now, if you're worried about money, save. That's what it would say. If you're worried about status, work hard. That's what it would say. If you're worried about your position, make sure you hold on to it and defend it. That's what it would say, right? That's what capitalism is built on for those of you that are interested in that. And there's, I'm not saying that it's wrong to work hard or it's wrong to save. Of course, it's right to do those things. But here's Jesus' answer to worry. Be generous. Oh, dear. If you're worried you don't have enough money, give some away. How upside down is that? But it works. I will at some point preach on giving in Dundonald, not because I'm going to try and squeeze you dry. I'll do it when I get to the text that teaches it because I exegete the Bible. I'm not going to use it as a weapon to kill you. I never will. If I do, tell me off. But here's the fundamental position of the teaching of the Bible on money and on possessions. If you hold on to them, then they're holding on to you. The teaching of the Bible is never about give more, give more, give more. We need it, we need it, we need it. The teaching of the Bible on money is this. If you hold it with an open hand, you'll always have enough because it will not become an idol in your life and you'll be free to live under the grace and the protection and the mercy of God. But Jesus in Matthew 6 does something which is really exciting. I remember reading this for the first time nearly 30 years ago and my eyes came alight and my, my whole spirit came alive as I've been thinking about it and I've been thinking about it for 30 years. He takes the things that are on the inside of us and says the outside stuff is controlled by the inner life. 
How many of you as evangelicals or as Christians or as charismatics or Pentecostals or Bapticostals or Anglomatics or whatever you want to call yourselves have spent 10, 20, 30 years thinking I have to work harder on my quiet time. I have to work harder on my prayer life. I have to do it more. I have to give it more. It's not working. I have to give it more. I have to give it more. I have to give it more. Out of a sense of guilt. Whereas in the Bible, in Jesus' teaching, the reality between our inner life and outer life, what gives us the energy to address our inner life is not guilt, but love. And a sense that in this place, if we can get it right, our lives are liberated from the idols that claim to give us freedom when they actually control us. That's what Matthew 6 is about. Money says to you, the more you have, the more you can do. Jesus says, be careful it doesn't become an idol. Be generous with your time. Be generous with your money. Be generous with your attitudes. Be generous with your life. Be generous with your home. And you will see worry begin to fade. Ambitions take on a new significance. Possessions and status become used for the kingdom of God. I've heard some blundering sermons about money and power. People that have it being told that they're godless because they have it. What other nonsense? It's what you do with it that will determine its power in your life. And here in Matthew 6, Jesus takes alms, prayer, and giving. The root of who you are on the inside when no one else is looking. And explains how we are to live so that our ambitions and our worries and our anxieties and our outer life can fall into step with it. Go to Matthew 6 for a minute. I want to read the verse 1 and verse 33. Verse 1 says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before people, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now look at verse 33. Instead, seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's like two bookends that explain everything else in between. Now here's an interesting thing. Chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness. Now look back at verse 16 and verse 20 of chapter 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, which is it, Jesus? In verse 16, you're saying, let your, oh, by the way, good deeds in verse 16 is the same word as verse 20, righteousness, in chapter 6, verse 1, righteousness. It's diakosune in Greek, and it means acts of kindness, righteousness, rightness, or mercy. So in, Acts, in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, let your good deeds shine out so that people will see your, your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And verse 20, he says, unless your good deeds shine out, then you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, be careful to do your good deeds in public and private. Well, which is it? Is it that or is it that? It's both. Because here and here, he's talking about what we do in terms of our external decisions. Here, chapter 6, verse 1, he's talking about who we are on the inside when no one else is looking. It all depends. This whole chapter, in fact, much of Christian life, I hazard to guess much of evangelical Christianity is predicated upon why you do what you do. Do you do it so that people will look at you and say, you're amazing. You pray so well. You're such a godly person. Do you do it so they can clap you and applaud you? Do you give so people can know? Do you pray so people can hear? I can remember one lady in a prayer meeting that I led in a church in, in um, Bournemouth 30, nearly 25 years ago. And she came to me one Sunday morning and she said, I am very unhappy with the fact that people seem to pray um, in ways that do not fit my spirituality. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I just don't like the way they pray. They should stop and let me pray. And I said, there's something wrong. I'll call her. Frida, because her name wasn't Frida. There's something wrong with the way you're thinking. Now, 
That's an extreme example. I've had people not so long ago in a church that I led, we launched a huge building project and a man came to me at the end of it. Stand up, David, you're the man. And I never take a lesson for you. If you ever want to give um, Dundonald money, don't give it to me. Don't give me a fiver to give to Dundonald because I'll give it back to you and ask you to give it to the treasurer. I don't want to know anything about your giving. It's none of my business. This man came to me. This is how this happened. This is the, this is the um, envelope, David. Good morning, Malcolm. I'd like to give you a gift for the church. I said, oh, no, it's all right, thanks. I don't take gifts from the church. Um, why don't you give it to the treasurer? And he said, no, 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 you have it. So he took my hand and he put my hand on it. I said, I, I don't want it. He said, no, no, you take it. He said, it's for the building project. I said, I don't want it. He said, you take it. And I'm like, I don't want it. And he took his hand off it. I said, no, I don't want it. You take it. And this went on for ages. Thank you very much. Useless illustration, but helpful. <laughs> and he said to me, he said to me, there's a check for a million pounds in that. And I said, oh. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really. <laughs> I said, oh, why are you telling me that? He said, I just want the church to have it so that we can build the project. I said, um, are there any strings associated with this? He said, no, not really. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but there was one string. And I said, you know what? You should keep that money. If you gave an order to control, keep your money. If you pray in order to be noticed, learn how to pray silently. If you trumpet your discipline so that everybody thinks you are an amazing godly person, you need to have a different attitude to that because that's what leads to real freedom. And that's the thing that Jesus is getting at here, which is so deeply important to us. It's very hard for me to explain this, but here's what I want to try and say to you from these sets of verses. My private life is none of your business in one sense, but it will manifest itself in my public life in every way. And there are kind of two things going on in Matthew 6 that are really important for, for, for culture in Northern Ireland, for this church community, for Elam, and for what it means to be a Christian in the modern world. And they, they look as if they contradict each other, but they don't. The first is this, don't be a hypocrite. The church has been blighted for thousands of years with people who have said they believe something and then not lived it. The biggest hurdle for many people in Northern Ireland to become Christians is not the Christian faith, it's Christians. It's the way we talk to one another. It's the way we treat each other. It's the way we behave. It's the words that we use. It's the dismissiveness that we have. It's the sectarianism that we allow to slip into our language. That puts people off. We've got to do something about that. It might surprise you, but God is not white. Oh, you are surprised. <laughs> and he's not a man. God is above gender. The 50% of this room that are women, you're just as much a representative of the character and nature of God as the men are. I'm an egalitarian. I believe passionately that men and women can serve God side by side. I look forward to exploring that with you. But there's nobody in this room that is less than someone else. There's no one that sits under someone else as if the other person is more important or more powerful or more significant to God. Nowhere. We need to be careful about how we handle ourselves. But the second thing which can look like it contradicts that is this. Your private spiritual life is private, but it has public consequences. Your personal relationship with God, your personal piety will work itself out in your behaviors. And if you are, and I don't mean this to put pressure under or to frighten you, but I, I mean this with every aspect of truth in my heart that I can express. If you're involved in secret sin, you're affecting my spiritual life because I'm part of this body. Your hidden sin has a consequence on me and my hidden sin has a consequence on you. The way we behave with God privately will work itself out into our community. 
We've got to be careful about that. That's why Jesus spends so much time helping them understand two things at the same time. Number one, you cannot separate your personal piety from your public life. But number two, your personal piety must be so devoted to God that you put him first in all things. How would you feel if you came to the place where you realized when you look at the internet, there are 600 pairs of eyes looking at it with you? What would you turn off, fellas? How would you feel if you were walking down the street and you saw a bloke, girls, that was attractive to you and he wasn't your husband and you allowed your mind to wander after him and you realized that all your sisters were wandering with you? There's a corporate dimension to our private lives that ties us together. And in a moment or two, when we come to this table, we're given the chance every week to make sure we're right with God. These three things, prayer, generosity, prayer, and fasting, sit together. In Matthew 6, verses 2 to 4, Jesus talks about how you give. And he says, fundamentally, that when you give, you are not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I want to stop and explain that for a moment or two to you. What is our attitude when we give? One of the challenges that we face is that we can give out of a wrong attitude and the gift can still make a difference, but actually the giving of it has a negative impact on me and on the person. Almsgiving in Jewish tradition was nothing to do with the organized church, if you like, the synagogue or the temple. It was to do with what one person in the congregation or community gives to another person who has need. And the interesting thing about New Testament Christianity is that rarely is the organized giving of the church supposed to meet the needs of the poor in the community of faith. It's supposed to be us meeting each other's needs. Jesus says, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. But he does it just not there. He uses this phrase of secrecy two or three times. Now, let me try and take them all together for you so that it'll save us a bit of time. If you were a faithful Jew and you were going to rabbi school or Sunday school our equivalent of Sunday school, to get taught how to live a good life. There are three areas that they would spend a lot of time talking to you about. Guess what they are? Praying, giving, and fasting. If you were a faithful Muslim, there are five areas. Guess what three of them are? Praying, giving, and self-discipline, fasting. So when Jesus hones in on these three things, he's honing in on what Jews understood were the key principles of spiritual life. And the three are always in this order, giving, praying, and fasting. What we do with these things in Matthew chapter six really challenges us. It helps us to think through things in a different way. Now, Let's take giving first of all. But in every single situation, giving in the first few verses, prayer in verses 5 to 15, and fasting in verses 16 to 18, these spiritual practices shape the way our lives live. What matters is motive. We don't do it with an eye to people. We do it with an eye to God. We do it because he is our audience. Why are you doing this? If you decide you're going to give somebody a gift, why are you giving them it to them? If you decide you're going to pray, why are you praying? If you decide you're going to fast, why are you fasting? It's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason and end up in a mess. Is it so that people will think that you are in control? Is it so that you can manipulate? Is it so that you can be seen to be the big cheese or the godly woman or the godly man? If we do them to be seen by people praying, giving, and fasting, generosity, prayer, and self-discipline, then the act, themselves, the act itself becomes rotten. 
If we do them so that we might grow in grace and we might serve God and put him first and be shaped and controlled by his spirit, then they're good things. Do it not because other people are watching. Do it not because you want to get control of something. Do it because God is watching. Never pray, never give, never fast in order to get the attention of somebody else. Jesus teaches here, when you give money away, forget about it as quickly as possible because that's what God does. When you pray, he teaches, let your prayer life develop in secret and in simplicity. Do business with God one-to-one. And when you enter into a period of self-discipline, fasting, abstaining from food or television or whatever it is you might abstain from, make sure you keep it a private affair. Now, Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 to 4 tells us, when you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. This is the message. You've seen them in action, I'm sure. Play actors, I call them. Treating prayer meeting and street corner like a stage. Acting compassionate as long as someone is watching. Playing to the crowds. They get applause, true, but that's all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it quietly and unobtrusively. That's the way your God, who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, helps you out. We are to give to those in need, not as a duty, but as a God-given responsibility. And we are always to give generously, but never to give conspicuously. I wonder if there's anybody you could bless in your family, in the community, that needs your help, that needs your support, someone you know that is struggling. Just do it quietly. And watch how God opens your heart as a result. Now, I want you to look at verse 2 for a minute. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The word that is used here for trumpets is really interesting. I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to the Greek language, and I love some of the things that it does, particularly in Jesus' sermons. So here... If I was to take you to the temple in Jerusalem, outside it on one wall, there are a whole load of baskets, or there would have been a whole load of baskets, and they were called the trumpets. And do you know what they were? They were the offering bags. And the scribes and the Pharisees would stand beside the trumpets and watch as people gave. And you got to decide how you give. You could decide, I'm going to give to the priests today. I'm going to give to the temple. I'm going to give to the army. I'm going to give to the sacrificial system. I'm going to give to the building fund. But the priest would stand alongside and watch you. They'd be like, oh, I see Rebecca's given 10 shekels this week. Very good, Rebecca. Thank you very much. Mm, Lovely. The only one that wasn't there was giving to the poor. Giving to those in need. But the scribes and the Pharisees had started to trumpet it. It's where the phrase comes from. They'd started to say, tell us what you're giving to the poor. Tell us, let us look after that for you. Jesus challenges them at the deepest level. Now, there are two challenges here for you as a church, for me too. The one is, how many of us would like the system where our giving was published every week? I didn't think so. The Jewish system had that. Some Presbyterian churches still do, you know. They publish on a monthly basis who'd given. I think that's an awful idea. Not because I'm embarrassed about my giving, I just don't like the idea of it. So on one hand, there's a real challenge to our culture, but it's actually a challenge around money. It's a challenge around how we respond to giving and to the whole thing. Play acting with our resources, play acting with who we are. He says you're not to be like that, but he uses the same language twice more about hypocrites, those that give ostentatiously, those that pray ostentatiously, and those that fast ostentatiously. Now, I am going to have to come back to this, but there are a couple of things I want to say to you that are really, really interesting. You see in the section in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks about teaching us how to pray, and he says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray in private. The Lord's Prayer, we'll come back to it. The Greek word that's used for that little room is the timaeon. And it's the inner room of a Jewish home where everything that was wealthy and valuable and needed guarded was placed. And then just a few verses later, 
He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. He's making a direct comparison. And he's saying to these Jewish people, you know, if I went into your little room, I would find it full of all of the trinkets that you think define your power and your worth and your value. Things that your mother had given you, your father had given you, your shekels and your earnings. It would be piled high with your stuff. But I'm telling you that there's a better inner room. And you can pile it high with treasure before God as you get to know him and love him and worship him and learn what it is to trust him. And that stuff doesn't corrupt, the other stuff does. I have a friend who took a funeral years ago. And it was one of those funerals where the fella had left a bit of money. And the vultures started to circle. Family members were coming out of the woodwork. And somebody at the funeral, one said to the other, how much did he leave? And they responded, everything. (laughs) You can't take a dime with you. There will be a moment when all of us will stand before God in exactly the same state and give account for our lives. At the heart of this, Jesus says, that's how you're to live now. Knowing that none of this defines you. We live in a church where or part of a church where men and women are generous and kind with your time. I'm so grateful to you. Not just to go to Gold Hill, to Dundonald, but to the church of Jesus Christ across the world. I'm part of a church where people are praying. I'm part of a church where people are being kind. I'm part of a church where people are giving. I'm part of a church where we're on a journey together into all that God has for us. But let's keep our hearts right in the middle of all of this. Make sure you don't get defined by anything other than Christ. How is your inner life? If you want your outer life sorted out, address your inner life. Who are you when the lights are out? One last thought to whet your appetite for a month from now. It's really hard in English to understand the way these two halves of this chapter hang together. But there is one bit of it that is just remarkable. There's a section halfway through where Jesus talks about the eye being the lamp of the soul. And in English idiom, if you were generous to me, Stephen, I would say he's a very open-handed man. And if you were a bit of a miser, don't tell me you are, I don't believe it. We would say he's a bit tight-fisted. The Jewish equivalent of that very idea is wide-eyed or narrow-eyed. And if you were wide-eyed, like that, you were generous. If you were narrow-eyed, like that, you were mean. But it wasn't just about money. (coughs) To live wide-eyed was to be generous in your opinion of others, was to be generous with your time, was to believe the best of other people, was to be kind and compassionate, was to have an open door in your home, was to make room for people who didn't have anyone else, was to welcome strangers, was to go the extra mile, to be wide-eyed, was to see the possibilities where other people saw problems. It was to see new moments of grace where other people saw legalism. To be wide-eyed was to be alive. And to be narrow-eyed was to be mean and judgmental and short-tempered and self-righteous and legalistic. And here's the thing, don't fall out with me when I say this. I come from an evangelical tradition. I'm proud to be within that stream. But I am tired of the tradition I am part of being known as mean, short-eyed, close-eyed. I don't like them, and 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 I don't like you, and I don't like you. Everything about us at times can feel so narrow. 
You don't raise your hands at the right point. You don't sing the right songs. You don't believe the same thing about me. You read a different version of the Bible. You have a different attitude about baptism. You do this, you do this, you do this. And it just stinks of this close-eyedness. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? And then you meet a Christian. And they look at you. And you think, you know what? Grace shines out of your face when you look at me. Love and kindness and forgiveness and mercy and hope. What church do you think is going to attract people? Have a wild guess. We want to see ourselves continuing to grow and blossom. We will never do it if we are tight-eyed. If we want to grow and blossom, open up your eyes. Allow yourself to see the beauty in people. Here's a simple test, a simple idea. Why don't you compare your worst to their best? Not your best to their worst. Why don't you try to believe the best of someone? Try it. You'll say to me, Malcolm, I'll get hurt. Yes, you will. When we lived in Yeovil, Debbie and I have tried to live by this. We haven't got it right. When we lived in Yeovil, there was a fella came into our family who had nowhere else to go. His name, oh, it doesn't matter what his name was. Well, his name was Matthew. And he came and lived with us. He was, a, he was an addict. And um, he took advantage of us, took things that he shouldn't have taken. And he died 24 years of age. A young fella called, I'll call him Stephen, that lived with us um, in a different context, stole things from us, wrecked our house. Would we do it again? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's something changes in you when you live a lifestyle to a different set of priorities. Let me tell you a story about the guy I've just called Stephen, and then we're going to come to communion. It all boils down to this question about how you treat those that have less than you. Too often we see it as an act of condescension to give. I with the power will give you time. I with the money will give you without. So I'm in power and you're receiving. The Christian, early Christian church didn't believe in the condescension of power. When you gave, when you supported, when you loved someone else, it was one beggar giving another beggar bread. You were on a level playing field. And one theologian of the early church believed that when you gave to the poor, you were looking into the eyes of God. Because Jesus said, when you've done it for the least of these, my brothers, you've done it for me. I'm going to explain a moment in my life that changed me forever if I can. We had a young fellow staying with us. And a friend was having a barbecue and he said, why don't you bring him? And I said, okay. So we went to the barbecue. Somebody had given me a blue Vauxhall Cavalier hatchback. Look at me. It was about 25 years, years old. It was falling apart at the seams, but it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. This fella was coming back from the barbecue with me in the car. And he looked up at me and he said, Malcolm, for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm part of a family. And I looked back to say thank you. And Jesus Christ was looking at me. The car filled with something. And I pulled over. I was looking into the eyes of Jesus. That young man was found dead the following day. But I knew that God did something in his life. Every time we share in God's generosity with another human being, 
Every time we see hope where others see despair, we unlock something that is so valuable and powerful. And it is all rooted in a moment on a cross where your Savior saw something in you worth dying for. On the same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup and he drank from it and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. We feast on his richness because of his generosity. And he asks us to be generous with other people. Come to this table, not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come not because you love the Lord a lot, but because you love him a little and you desire to love him more. Come with your open, private life before him. And even if it's in shreds this morning, let him rebuild your life. Let him knit you back together. Let him give you hope and grace and forgiveness again. If you're not a Christian, then either become a Christian now or don't eat the bread and wine. If you're not walking right, resolve to put it right now and then take the bread and wine. And if you resolve not to let go of those hurts, maybe you've been guilty of double standards. Lay them down today. Leave this building restored. Come because God loves you. And he has made a way for you to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. Could the stewards please wait upon us as we wait at the table. Campbell, could you come and help me? We'll eat the bread together as one body, so please retain it. That reminds us that we're connected to each other to remember the body of Jesus broken for you. Brand, to remember the body of Jesus broken for you. Thank you, everybody. If you need gluten-free bread, it's in the little bowls in the middle of the plates. contemplate taking this bread, I want to make sure that you understand whatever mistakes you've made this week, however many they may be, lay them at the foot of the cross. This bread isn't a bar. It's an invitation for you to stay right with God. Let him have the mistakes and the regrets and the sorrow. And then take the bread. Don't value your mistakes more than this. He is ready to restore and renew. Let him give you life through it. deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch his treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away 
as once which mother chosen bring many sons to glory together giving thanks to God for the broken body of his son. And we'll drink the wine individually, please, and then place the empty cups back into the trays. Thank you to remember the body and the blood of Jesus shed for you. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know. No power, no wisdom. 
us through your son Jesus Christ thank you for your generosity toward us in forgiving us in transforming us in accepting us in creating us in sustaining us in loving us in trusting us in calling us in being patient with us in empowering us in guiding us and in drawing us we give you praise and ask you to help us to live like that with other people by the power of the Holy Spirit.